0: to Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics.
1: I'm Gretchen McCulloch. And I'm Lauren Gorn. and today we're getting enthusiastic about scales and implicature. But first, it's our fifth anniversary. I can't believe we've been making this show for five years. And as ever, we do a new listener
0: drive for our anniversary. So if you know someone who'd be keen on a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics, and you want to send them a personal recommendation, if there's another podcast you love which you want to suggest does a crossover episode with us, or if you just want to share the show on your general social media, we appreciate all forms of recommendations, and they really do work each year to bring new listeners into the show.
1: And also feel free to tag us – at Lingthusiasm in your recommendations on social media, or you can just feel the warm glow of satisfaction in your heart. (laughs) You can also
0: share the Lingthusiasm by getting Lingthusiasm merch or an annual Patreon membership for a fellow Lingthusiast, which will give them access to bonus episodes for the whole year, plus the library of existing bonus content, now over 50 bonus episodes. This makes a great gift for you or someone
1: else. Whether you're new or old to the show, thank you so much for being here. Speaking of bonus episodes, our most recent bonus was on linguistic illusions. All of the
0: things that you think you hear or understand, and then actually there's something else going on.
1: This and 56 other bonus episodes are at patreon.com/slash I have a quiz for you, Gretchen. Okay. Which is Warmer, tepid, or lukewarm.
0: Oh, okay. So I think of both of these as characteristics that apply to water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think lukewarm water feels a little bit warmer to me. But they're both that kind of, you know, room temperature, a little bit warmer. You know, the temperature of what you used to make yeast go with bread. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Do you have a a strong opinion about these? I thought that I would, and I just cannot fix in my mind which one should be warmer. Like, maybe lukewarm, but I don't really have – I think it's possibly because I don't know what luke means. It is a lost old English word that means uh, tepid, so uh, even (laughs) etymologically (laughs) we're going in circles here. (laughs) Um, But I don't have a sense of how they compare to each other.
0: When I was a kid, I, I definitely knew a kid called Luke, and I was like, "Oh, it's it's the type of water that Luke likes, like for his <laughs> bath or something."
1: <laughs> Completely different history of those two words, but understandable that you would uh, come to that very specific uh, folk history. Uh, I mean,
0: kids, right? Like this is the place that spurious etymologies are made of. Whereas, I don't think I encountered Tepid until I was a bit older.
1: Mm. We have a clear sense of how hot and cold relate to each other and that tepid and lukewarm are somewhere in the middle, but uh, things get a little bit fuzzy in that middle space.
0: Yeah, they totally do. and There are actually also cross-linguistic differences in terms of how we carve up the temperature space. Hmm. So I spent a long time when I was learning French trying to figure out what their word for warm was. Is there one? The answer is there isn't really one. Okay, so you can say for warm water if you're directly contrasting it with hot water, uh, de l'eau tiède, which is really more like lukewarm or tepid water. Mm-hmm. But you can't say that of the weather. You can't say that of other types of things. You just talk about the weather being chaud, being hot. And so, like first day of spring, you're like, oh, it's you know, finally above zero. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Oh, it's so hot out, which which you can say in English, right? Like, you know, oh, it's the first day of of
1: warm weather after a long period of time. You can be like, oh, it's so hot. I think it's just worth saying that like your idea of what counts as <laughs> hot weather coming out of a Canadian winter, and my idea of hot weather like in the middle of an Australian summer is relevant and contextual. And
0: to be fair, my idea of what counts as hot in my April versus in my July is also extremely different.
1: Yeah. These things are relative. <laughs> And so I assume this means that because of context, French people can actually perceive the difference between a pleasantly warm day and an unpleasantly over-hot day.
0: Yeah, I mean it's not like they're confused about whether you need to wear a sweater when it's ten degrees versus thirty degrees. Like obviously they know, but the same word that's used for the whole span of, you know, warmer than I would expect it or hot in some way that's significant to me. And French does have a word, in fact, several words for cool. Mm-hmm. In the temperature sense, uh, frais is cool, uh, and also fret is cool in a which is like a Quebec word. And then froid is properly cold. So it was weird to me that in English you have this symmetrical scale where it has one sort of midpoint term on each side of perceptual zero, which isn't actually zero degrees, but it's like unremarkable temperature. And then you have slightly more and less than than remarkable, and then a lot more and less than remarkable. And it was the weirdest thing for me was having this lack of symmetry on the scale. Hmm. But as it happens, this is a a language family thing. So having words for warm and hot is common in Balto-Slavic languages and Germanic languages. And of course, English is a Germanic language. But Mm -hmm. in Romance languages, uh, so French chaud, Spanish caliente, and Latin calidus, and then also in Greek thermos, which you may recognize as the origin of thermometer, in other words, Mm -hmm. one word covers both.
1: I didn't realise it had such a time depth to it. Interesting. English has more points on the scale for warmth than French does, but it's not necessarily a single scale. So We treat warm water and hot water the same way we treat warm weather and hot weather. But When I was learning Nepali, I had to learn the difference when you use the word for hot that refers to weather and the word for hot oh. that refers to water and beverages. So there's uh, garmi, which is warm weather, and then tato, which is warm or hot. For if you want your your water to be hot,
0: and is this for food as well? Or does that go with the beverages?
1: Food goes with beverages, but I remember it very clearly in the context of beverages because the non-weather word for cold is chiso, and you can actually ask for a chiso, and you'll get like a canned beverage.
0: Ah. Right, so like a like a cold drink versus a hot drink, like tea or something.
1: Yeah, I guess
0: it's like English has. I want a cold one, which is used for beer.
1: Yeah, similar vibes, and but completely different words used for these two different heat scales. That's interesting. When I was looking
0: up the etymology for cold, which is Mm -hmm. you know very old, goes back to Proto Indo European. um, Etymonline. interestingly, because it doesn't normally have entries about Japanese, but it points out that Japanese has two words for cold as well. Hmm. Samui, for coldness in the atmosphere or environment, and Tsumetai, for things which are cold to touch, which is also used in the figurative sense for personalities and behaviours.
1: Cool. So uh, it's, it's more cool than cool. It's, it's cold, <laughs> as a fact. That does not work. <laughs> cool has elevated itself out of the uh, scale of temperatures.
0: Yeah, and that's something else that I had to get used to you know, as a teenager learning French, that I couldn't use the word for cool, fray, to mean like, that's neat, that's nifty, uh, <laughs> that's popular. Uh, there are words for these things in French, but they aren't weather words. That actually reminds me of another very obscure English word that's used specifically to kind of differentiate between
1: different types of heat scales. Hmm. And this is the word apricity. I do not know this word. I don't even have a sense of it. Can I make one up and see how close I get? <laughs> Go ahead. Is it a temperature word that means one of those perfectly middle of the transition of seasons that captures the sense of like a still April morning?
0: It is a word that's found in April, but it specifically refers to the warmth of sunlight on the the skin or on a surface, as distinct from the warmth of the air. Hmm. So you know you can see that April is the kind of month that has some Whether You know, whether you're in the northern or southern hemisphere, April and October are sort of those transitional temperature months where it's kind of chilly, but you can feel you know you can stand at the window and feel the warmth, and then you open the window, and you're like, oh, actually, it's cold. Or you can be you know going for a walk and be like, oh, the sun feels so warm on my skin, but I'm still wearing a coat.
1: Um absolutely going to take that into my active vocabulary. That's a dimension of warmth I had never even uh, had a specific word for before.
0: Isn't it a charming word? I-, I mean, to be fair, I think it is one of those sort of philosopher words that was coined as a, wouldn't it be great if there was a distinction for this, but I like it and I have adopted it too.
1: <laughs> Excellent. That's how we make these distinctions happen. <laughs> absolutely. Join you in the apricity club. <laughs> so We can plot out warm, hot, cold, very cold, chilly, mild, along a line and we have temperatures we associate with them although as we've already said those temperatures can be context and weather system dependent.
0: And I think it's worth pointing out that we can plot, you know, warm and cold and hot on a line not just because we have thermometers. Like people we're doing mm-hmm. this before thermometers. These words are all older than the scientific <sighs> measurement of temperature, which is around 500 years old. Like one of the first thermoscopes, which is a precursor to the thermometer, oh. was developed by the Italian inventor Galileo Galilei in the 1500s. So, you know, words for hot and cold are much older than that.
1: Yep. Yeah. We didn't start really feeling weather just because we could assign Absolute value numbers to the amount of weather or warmth that we felt:
0: Yeah, but we have this sort of intuitive sense, and even you know a kid who hasn't learned numbers or hasn't learned how to read a thermometer yet can still feel a difference between cold and warm or hot.
1: Mm-hmm. And so far we've been talking about temperature for which we have this fixed, absolute numerical scale, but we also have these words that we can affix to parts of that scale, but there are also some things that sit on a scale even if we don't have absolute fixed quantities that we can attach to them, uh, which means that I get to talk about one of my favourite experiments that I run in my semantics tutorials. Um, unfortunately, we don't have 30 of us here. And, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't have a big bag of lollies uh, or confectionery, which is what I normally start this class with. <laughs> Where is my so, candy? Uh, Gretchen, <laughs> I'm, I'm very sorry. <laughs>
0: you need to send me my candy over the internet.
1: <laughs> I come in with a bag of confectionery, and I put people into groups and ask one group of people to all take a couple of lollies. Mm-hmm. I ask the next group to take a few lollies, and I ask the next group to take some lollies. And Then we count how many of the individual items people felt comfortable taking from the bag. Ah. And even though these are all kind of vague words, we might have a sense of them in some contexts – there's variation in how many people take, depending on the instructions they've been given. So some people will have a very literal interpretation of a couple and just take two. Others will be like, "Well, it's a giant bag of small uh, M&Ms, so they might take three or four. Yeah. People who take a few, some will take three, some will take four or five. And then when people are given the instruction to take some, they might take six or seven, depending, of course, on monitoring other people because it's not actually <laughs> yeah. an experiment. It's a social experiment in a tutorial. <laughs>
0: – Yeah, it's not a randomised controlled trial.
1: – Yeah. And then we talk about the fact that this bag of candy has a very specific volume and they have a specific size. And If I came in with boxes of cupcakes, that might radically alter how many they take. And If we were talking about stars in the sky, when there's so many teeny tiny stars, a few stars might be a section of the galaxy with hundreds of stars in it, uh, which is more than you would feel comfortable taking candy from a bag.
0: Yeah, I think of this because some people will get very dogmatic about like a few always means three or four. And mm-hmm. it does in many physical contexts. You know, if I say I want a few eggs, that probably does mean three or four eggs. But if you have like a stadium that seats ten thousand people or hundred thousand people and only a thousand people show up, you could look out at that stadium and say only a few people are here. That is a lot of eggs. It's <laughs> just a lot of eggs. But maybe if you have like a massive egg factory and you normally process thousands and thousands of eggs a day, then you know, oh, there's only a hundred today. Like, what happened to all the eggs? There's only a few here. So it really depends on what your baseline level expectation is for the exact numerical value. But a few means, you know, not very many in the context of the whole potential amount.
1: And we can still plot it on a scale with a couple where. A few tends to be more than a couple. and Thinking about the relationship between these terms in a scale, even though the actual numbers aren't always fixed, is more useful for understanding the semantic difference between them than necessarily fixating on that very dogmatic it-always-means-to kind of approach. Not everything that we conceptualise as sitting on a scale has to have some absolute scientific unit type numerical value associated with it
0: well and numbers are again a relative newcomer to the kind of group and expectation level ways that humans have been conceiving of quantities mm-hmm. for a much longer period of time and so it's kind of neat that words like a couple and a few and some sort of pay attention to like a logarithmic scale rather than to a strict numerical scale because it's based on your expectations
1: and in some ways that brings us to another dimension of the scale which is How specific you're being. So, a word like a few or a couple is less specific than saying ten eggs or ten lollies or ten stars. And talking in those kind of less specific, less numerical terms implies in a way that you don't know or you don't have any reason to pay attention to the specific number.
0: Yeah. Whereas being really precise can say, okay, here's a more specific way of naming something. So if you describe a person as big or tall, mm-hmm. you can be like, okay, well, you know, that could be pr- a pretty large range of heights, but say they're above six feet or something. Whereas if you describe someone as like, this person is six feet tall. Or if you describe someone as like, this person is like exactly like two meters and 11 centimeters and one millimeter tall. Yeah, like you can you can be sort of more and more specific. And I think if somebody says, you know, like I'm 5 foot 11 and 3 quarters, you're like, "Okay, so you're really making a lot of points here not to say that you're 6 feet tall because you don't want to claim that extra quarter inch or something."
1: I also know that I get called tall when I'm in countries like Nepal because again, a word like tall is very relative, but in the context of my family or professional basketball players, I am in no way tall, and then specific heights are actually more informative, uh, depending on the context that you're in.
0: <laughs> well, and it depends on, again, if you're looking for the social context of being tall because everyone else around you is much taller, much shorter, versus the literal context of, like, will you fit through this doorway without banging your head? Mm. Or you must be this tall to ride this ride at the amusement park.
1: We can even move completely beyond quantity and still have these Scales that have all these implications that come with them, so if I said I believe that Gretchen has some confectionery she's not telling me about versus I know that Gretchen has some confectionery. she's not telling me about there's very different weights to how certain I am about exactly what lollies you're keeping from me.
0: yeah, so if you believe I have a secret chocolate stash versus if you know I have a secret chocolate stash, like one of those is a bit more of an accusation. <laughs>
1: Yeah, because I have more certainty. Uh, I have some amount of evidence, I guess, of this secret stash, and we can plot words like "I believe," and "I think," and "I know" relative to each other,
0: uh, or with something like I-, "I wonder." You know, you'd even go weaker than that. I suppose that you have a secret chocolate stash, and that's really again much more doubtful. And so you can have this sort of again scale of certitude.
1: We have these as words in English, but in languages like Yolmo, where I work with the evidential system of the language, the grammar of the language has baked in. You know, I saw that this thing happened, or I was told that this thing happened, or I know from my own personal experience of it that this thing happened. And a lot of work on evidentiality puts these different types of evidence that you have on a scale. And a lot of the scales try and be really absolute about it. like Knowing because you saw something is definitely higher than knowing because someone told you. But I like, again, thinking about things in relative context. I think you telling me something about your own personal experience is probably a higher value of knowledge than me seeing and concocting some story about something in terms of your personal experience of it.
0: Uh, yeah. like If I tell you that I'm hungry, you know, that's probably better information than if you just see me eating something because maybe I'm eating it because I'm bored or I'm, you know, I know I'm going to be hungry later, so I might as well just finish this or something like that.
1: Yeah. So even for these non-quantity based scales, as always, context so important.
0: Another scale that I hadn't really thought about until I saw the linguist Elizabeth Pancratz tweeted about it on Twitter is the idea of using various kinds of smiley face emoji as a sort of scale of precision or a scale of relevance here. So there's like a slightly smiling face emoji, which is just like two dots and then a little little curve for the mouth. And in theory, it should be kind of like a smiley face. Like this should be an emoji you can just use to convey a smile. But in practice, it doesn't get used as much as the more elaborate smiling faces where the eyes are doing something or there's tears of joy or the mouth is doing something bigger or something like that.
1: There are more smiling face emoji than I think people realize until they go in and have to pick one, and then suddenly they have this scale of like, how happy am I? Am I like eyes closed, full mouth grin, big teeth, happy? And uh, it's hard to put yourself on a scale, which makes me think that like maybe that's why face with tears of joy kind of became so useful because people are like I can't choose between all these different smiles. I'll just go for the one that is so obviously delighted by the situation.
0: And you can sort of spot it among all the other ones that have subtle differences in the mouths and cheeks, mm. and especially on different platforms, you don't necessarily know which one someone else has used if you want to mirror theirs. Whereas, faceless tears of joy, like it always has those tear-shaped dots in the corner, so it has a relatively distinctive look on different platforms.
1: You never get this problem with emoticons because you have the like right bracket parenthesis canonical smile, and then you have the like capital D big grin. And that's it. You have so much less space to move in. And I think that's why the like classic smiling emoticon still feels fine in a way that the like classic smiling, smiley face emoji feels underwhelming.
0: Right. And maybe people are sort of more liable to draw this inference of, okay, you didn't use the fancier smiling face, so, you know, you must have meant that you didn't actually feel as positive as you might have when there's so many obvious alternatives of the more elaborate emoji that you could be using, hmm. whereas because it's harder to create more elaborate smiling faces, I mean, you do have like colon capital D or several parentheses or something like that, but it's this is true. It's not as obvious all of the different versions you could be doing instead.
1: Whether it's emoji or temperature or eggs, one of the things that these scales all seem to have in common is that where you choose to put yourself on the scale creates these implications. So what's interesting about a statement like the coffee is warm is that
0: I could follow it up with a more precise statement, a more extreme statement. I could say like the coffee is warm, in fact it's hot. And you know like that comes across as just providing sort of more precise information. It's not sort of a weird contradiction. If I said like the coffee is warm, in fact it's iced, you'd be like wait a second. No, that you, you can't that's not both of those things are possible. <laughs> Yeah. Or if I said the coffee's in a red cup, in fact, it's in a blue cup. You'd be like, no, 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 no. Those aren't – you can't just – (laughs) no. But I can do that with the coffee is warm, in fact, it's hot. Even though, normally speaking, if I say something like the coffee is warm, you would assume that I'm trying to imply that it's not hot. I can actually go in and cancel that assumption or that implicature by providing more precise information. Mm-hmm. And that's this very specific sort of relationship that these types of meanings that are on a scale have. And so The same thing with something like believe versus no. I can say, I believe Jane has a secret chocolate stash. In fact, I know she does. Even though normally, I believe Jane has a secret chocolate stash, it just sort of implies that I don't actually know for a fact. I can then go in and I can
1: cancel that implicature by saying, no, 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 I actually do know this. But it doesn't work in the opposite direction, so I can't say I know Jane has a secret chocolate stash. And people are like, "Oh, how do you know?" And you're like, "Well, because I believe that she does." <laughs> uh, is a case suddenly falling apart?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there are other words that sort of actually exist on a scale of specificity when you think about it. Okay. So if I say I'm going to go to the movies with John or Bill. Hmm. I could follow that with, in fact, I'm going to go with both of them. Mm-hmm. But the initial statement seems to imply I'll go to the movies with either John or Bill, but not both of them. And I can cancel that by saying, oh, yeah, in fact, I'm actually going to do, do it this way. But it does seem to imply not both of them because if I'd known that I was going to go with both of them, I could have just said and. like We have a word and. It's perfectly good at doing that thing if I'd known that and was likely to be true, I could have said that, and that's why we sort of have this word like and or where people are like, I, but I don't want to just. <laughs> I know that normally or could include and, but it probably doesn't, so I want to be like a little bit stronger and no, insert it something clear. else that's like in between hmm. these two. Yep. Uh, to really make it obvious that it could be and, even though technically, like it would still be true if I'd said. I'll go to them with John or Bill, and both of them were free, so I went with both of them. So it sort of also creates that scale where the other members of the scale or the more specific members of that scale aren't implied, even though they could show up along the way.
1: We use these implied contextual pieces of information all the time. It's so hard to break our minds out of the way that these implications are sitting along a scale. That sometimes it can be hard to wrap your head around those examples until you break them out into a specific context like that.
0: Another example of how these implicatures are so ingrained is so if you have a statement like, "I ate some of the cookies," mm-hmm. you know we can set up a scenario where you know we've got a cookie jar, and you know, I go in and I say, "Oh well, I've eaten some of the cookies, so they won't all be left, and then you open up the jar and you're like, "You ate all of them I'm like, well, you know I ate <laughs> some." I ate all. Uh, in fact, I ate all of them. Again, there isn't a contradiction here the way there would be if you did it in the inverse, right? Like, I ate all the cookies, in fact, I ate some of them. You're like, wait.
1: Why are there still some left? I'm very confused.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that one doesn't work. But this order, I ate some, in fact, I ate all, that is just cancelling an implicature. It's not actually falsifying the actual thing that you said.
1: I always feel like this is the point where uh, linguists and – legal scholars both get excited because it's just like, oh, yes, the the sum defence in cookie-taking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I think this is one of the things that, that lawyers get trained to do is paying attention to the actual stated information, even though normally when we talk to each other, all of these levels of implicature do come around for the ride. Mm. Um, there is a really fun version of this that you can do with numbers. Okay. And – my favorite example of this is this GIF, which I have analyzed before <laughs> for linguistic purposes because I really like this GIF. Um, it also shows up in, in Crash Course Linguistics, so I love this example so much. <laughs> There's a GIF that has this vast swarm, this vast sea of ducks, and they're on a street in China for reasons that are not quite clear to me. And this is like a news broadcast that's clearly like there are all these ducks here. Like, what the heck's going on? And this GIF showed up on Tumblr, and somebody had commented under it, look at all these ducks, there are at least
1: 10. <laughs> You've actually talked about it on the show before as well, but it is such a great example of <laughs> implicature and specifically of this number-based implicature, and it makes me laugh every time.
0: And Somebody replied on Tumblr saying, well, you're not wrong. Because technically speaking, you know, here's uh, probably thousands of ducks, is at least 10 ducks. It's just that this is so uninformative. <laughs> and it so clearly implies that you don't know a more specific number when you very clearly do know a more specific number if you're looking at this GIF. It's this tension between the implied meaning and the literal meaning that creates the
1: humor there. Unuseful to the point of comedy. And A lot of comedy plays with this implied meaning and, and twists it in, in ways that go against our usual expectations of how the implicature rolls out.
0: There's another example of this from the BBC radio comedy Cabin Pressure, which I'm an enormous fan of. and One of the characters who's a little bit uh, not very good at implicatures uh, <laughs> says, you know, I can read people like a book. and Another character says, have you ever read a book, Arthur? And Arthur says, "Yes, actually, White Fang, twice."
1: <laughs> I thought that was just a generic use of a book, and uh, Arthur is treating it as a actual canonical number.
0: <laughs> right, like so. Generally, people would expect, you know, have you read a book to be answered in like the tens or the hundreds or maybe the thousands. Like most people who've read a book have read many books, mm-hmm. but Arthur is like, "Yeah, here's the book that I have read." But in a different context, you can use this, ah, oh, whatever, can potentially mean a single one or can potentially mean more than one, and pragmatically, it still makes sense. So if you say, for example, if you have a child, you can take advantage of our complimentary daycare service, and then someone could say, oh, yes, I have a child. And somebody could say, oh, yeah, I have two children. Um, that's fine. And so Normally, you wouldn't necessarily say that like one child implies that you might also have two. But in the context of, like, do you want to take advantage of the complimentary daycare service, You know, it's not suddenly that you have two children and it doesn't work for you anymore.
1: Arthur isn't the only person that can struggle with how things fit on a scale. This is something that children take quite a while to get their heads around as well, especially with those words that we were talking about earlier, like some or a few, that are very much context-dependent.
0: There's a really cute experiment testing kids on what kinds of things they can infer from context and from what's being said mm-hmm. and so they have some kids and they they have some you know plates of cookies and they have in one case they'll have a a researcher or a puppet or something say, "I ate the sugar cookies," and from that, the four and five year olds do understand that that person is trying to imply not the chocolate chip ones mm-hmm. So, If you say, I ate the cookies, that means you could have eaten any kind. But if you specified which kind of cookies you ate, that probably means that you didn't eat the ones you didn't specify. But if you say, I ate some of the cookies, they don't necessarily understand that means not all.
1: I always love these kind of experiments because it shows that language learning continues so much longer than just being able to put a grammatical sentence together, and that these words are actually hard to conceptualise on a scale. And part of why it is something that takes so long is because you just need lots and lots of examples of how some means a particular thing in some contexts and something else in other contexts. In fact, some of the studies seem to let children improve their sense of what some means by the end of the (laughs) experiment because it's possibly the first time that children have received these nice concrete examples of how much more or less some is in a given context. (laughs)
0: So there's an example from a study from Scordos and Papafrago, which says if you do the I ate all the cookies, what does this mean? I ate the sugar cookies, what does this mean? Example, and then you give this children an example with I ate some, what does this mean? Uh if you present them in that order, they actually do better because you've given them these very concrete examples about like what does this mean and what are the possible alternatives or what I could be implying here. Whereas if you do them in the other order, they don't do as well with the sum
1: before the all. Such a fun constraint to have to think of in your study design. Like we accidentally taught children more than they knew at the start of the experiment.
0: <laughs> yeah. And they think it's because, you know, you can teach them this in like an hour, which they'll gradually acquire through the course of, you know, their life. But if you give them this very focused practice for like an hour, then suddenly they're performing much more like adults because now they've learned it.
1: <laughs> the thing that all of the examples in this episode have in common is that the implicature comes up because we can put these things on a scale. But that's not the only way that Implicature works.
0: Right. So You can also imply things that don't really seem to be scalar. There was an example of a tweet that went up a little while ago where somebody posted a photo of a house that was for sale. Mm-hmm. and There was a big sign on top of the for sale sign that said,
1: Not haunted. Um, okay. So I have a lot of questions <laughs> that I <laughs> – Possibly wouldn't have had if there was just a normal for sale sign,
0: right? Exactly. So, you know, the not haunted sign is doing this implicature of like, wait, but am I supposed to expect this house might be haunted? But it's not doing so on a particular scale. Like, it's haunted or not haunted, which is not really a scale. It's just a wait. Suddenly, this information is relevant.
1: <laughs> this feels like an example of that meme of. Um, My house not haunted sign has people asking a lot of questions that are already answered by my house not haunted sign.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So sometimes bringing something up sort of implies that it's relevant. Uh, We did an episode about the Gricean maxims, and this is sort of talking about, okay, here's something that's relevant, which is also totally a type of implicature.
1: If you get to listen to the Gricey and Maxim's episode soon, then scalar implicature is normally about a maxim of quantity, because you're not giving a sufficiently clear indication of the relevant point on a scale, or you're playing with people's expectations about the quantity of information that you're giving, like uh, suggesting that at least 10 ducks are in a photo of thousands of ducks.
0: Can I give you two more of my favourite examples of scalar implicature and how it can be used for humorous effect? Yes, please. So One of them is from somebody who has Googled the number of squid species mm-hmm. and has found at least five – which I am not a squid biologist, but this person informs me that they're off by like two orders of magnitude.
1: <laughs> Are you technically not wrong? Technically not wrong. I'm not particularly right either. Yeah.
0: And The other example of scalar implicature which you don't have to know squid facts about is a tweet from the account at a whale fact, which gives us the very helpful whale fact that many whales
1: were never taught how to drive stick shift. <laughs> uh, uh, I, mean, I, I guess I don't need to fact-check this fact. I guess the joke here is coming from the fact that we're used to many being something on a scale that's relevant, but like no whales have learnt to drive stick shift, <laughs> and so anything along this scale is absurd. Right. So many implies not all,
0: because if you knew mm-hmm. that it was all, you could have just said all. And so we, we know that it's all whales have not been taught how to drive stick shift because whales can't drive cars. But many brings up in your mind, wait, I thought none of them had does that mean there are some whales that have been taught how to drive stick shift? In addition to the sort of general non-scalar implicature that whales can even be taught how to drive at all and that you need to specify stick shift like many whales know how to drive an automatic.
1: Once you start noticing scales, you realise that they pop up all over the place, whether that's you know absolute numerical scales or more relative semantic scales that you might not even have thought of as being put on a scale until you start thinking about the relationship between different words.
0: And Then, once you start noticing the scales, you can then start finding scalar implicature jokes everywhere you go.
1: For more Lingthusiasm and links to all the things mentioned in this episode, go to lingthusiasm.com. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can follow at Lingthusiasm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can get Kiki Booba scams What the Frickative t-shirts, and other Lingthusiasm merch at lingthusiasm.com slash merch. I tweet and blog as Superlinguo. I can be
0: found as at Gretchen A. McSee on Twitter. My blog is allthingslinguistic.com. And my book about internet language is called Because Internet. Have you listened to all the Lingthusiasm episodes and you wish there were more? You can get access to 56 bonus episodes to listen to right now at patreon.com slash lingthusiasm or follow the links from our website. Patrons also get access to our Discord chat room to talk with other linguistics fans and other rewards, as well as helping keep the show ad-free. Recent bonus topics include linguistic illusions, linguistics on Wikipedia, and an interview with Emily Graff from the Planet Word Museum. Can't afford to pledge? That's okay, too. We also really appreciate it if you can recommend Lingthusiasm to anyone who needs a little more linguistics in their life, especially during this month, our anniversary month.
1: Lingthusiasm is produced by Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gorn. Our senior producer is Claire Gorn. Our editorial producer is Sarah Dopiarella. Our managing producer is Liz McCullough. And our music is Ancient City by The Triangles.
0: Stay Lingthusiastic!